The reading this morning is, is from uh, the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and I believe it's going to be up on the screen behind me. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, Nicanor, Tingman, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Thank you. All right. So again, we're in uh, Acts chapter 6, if you want to follow along. Um, if you want a Bible, there's one at the welcome table. Feel free to get one of those. But Acts chapter 6 is where we're at. Uh, we'll look at verses 1 through 7. Um, and so, as many of you know, we're in this series called Partners in the Gospel. We're talking about partnership. It's the word that we use for membership, and we're not trying to be fancy. We're just trying to say that we got stuff to do, so we're not members of the country club. We got, we got to join together to accomplish the mission that the Lord has given us. And so this is the third and final uh, part of our partnership series today. All right, we're going to look at Acts chapter 6. Now, if you, if you pay attention to any of the discussion about the church, you know, on you know, your favorite place, social media, where lots of wisdom is, is uh, dispensed. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of arguments about what the church should be and what the church should do or, or what the church isn't doing, right? Right? The same kind of discussion. And, and many of those arguments revolve around what is the mission of the church? What is the mission of the church? What is it supposed to do? And you kind of have two extremes, uh, you can say, you know, is the church a, a preaching station trying to get people to heaven? Is that, is that the thing? Or is the church an institution that serves tangible needs and transforms society? And you'll have critiques from both sides of these. So you have somebody go, just preach the gospel. And then you have somebody go, why isn't the church doing anything in society? And there's lots of anger and frustration over this seeming division. And kind of depending on where you grew up and kind of how you, your mindset is, you probably gravitate towards one of those two options as well. But what I want to say is that those two options, to pick one or the other, is a false dichotomy. Okay? That's a false dichotomy. We, it, we, we don't say that the church only worries about spiritual matters, and we don't say that the church only worries about physical manners. That ignores the witness of the Scriptures. 
The scriptures say that the church, of course, worries about preaching the word and wants people to, to get to heaven and wants people to know who Christ is. And at the same time, the church, of course, helps people with their tangible needs. And we will not succumb to the pressure to move wholly to one side or wholly to the other because we want to stand on the truth of God's word. That the church is faithful through both word and deed ministry. The church is faithful through both word and deed ministry. And so when we look to this text, let's ask God to, to, to help us. Lord Jesus, would you explain your word to us, not just intellectually, but would it sink down into the depths of our hearts? And would it produce fruit that is obedience, Lord God, so that Christ Jesus would be glorified in the church and that the world looking at the church would see the glory of Jesus? It's in your name. Amen. Amen. So if you take a cursory look through this scripture, it talks about that it, it assumes this, this, that the church had this system of benevolence. Now listen, Acts chapter 2 is, is kind of like the birthday of the church. And so just a couple of chapters later in Acts chapter 6, we see this system of benevolence to particularly help those in the congregation that are widows. And so, so right there, we already see, well, we understand that the apostles were preaching. Like, that's one of the things that they did. But from the beginning, there was a system to help those in need. So, so right there, right there, we see that they did not have this false distinction between we do word ministry or deed ministry. They saw from the beginning that they did both. That physical service and help was part and per parcel of the church. Now, this should not surprise us because it stems from the Old Testament scriptures. If you read the Old Testament scripture, particularly if you stay in the Psalms or if you go to the prophets, you will see this concern for the downtrodden. I've made it my practice of recently to read at least one Psalm of day. Psalm of day. It's the, the prayer book of the church. And what's so surprising to me is how often, if I wasn't reading the Psalms, my prayers might not match what the Scriptures tell me to pray. But one of the things they pray for most consistently is what theologians call the quartet of the downtrodden. Now, the quartet of the downtrodden are the widows, the orphans, the foreigners, and the poor. And Scripture just assumes that the church, that God's people would be concerned for these categories of people. And what's interesting is this is a response to the reality of the brokenness of this world and of sin. It's not a question of if people are going to be in need. The question is, who are they? That, that's an important like, assumption to understand. The scripture is not saying if people are going to be in need, if there are people that might be overlooked, if there are people that might need extra help. The question is, who are they? Where are they at? So the scripture presupposes that God's people need to pay attention, listen, to those who may fall through the social cracks. It's implicit in the text of scripture. So if you go back to the, the widow, the orphan, the, orphan the, the widow, there was no social security system back in the day. They, 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 these, these were, were uh, older women who, who uh, maybe they couldn't rely on their family, but there was no, no, no social security office. So, so everybody was like, we got to make sure we take care of them. 
And then there were folks who, who maybe their parents had passed away early. And, and again, there, there weren't like these masses of orphanages. So like, we need to make sure that we take care of them. And then there were folks who were foreigners or aliens or, or immigrants. And, and it said, well, we know that people kind of have this predisposition to, to treat others who aren't like them in a certain way. So we need to make sure we care for them. And then there's this category of people who are on the, the, the bottom rung of society economic. Like one of my favorite laws, this is going to sound weird, but one of my favorite laws in the Old Testament is that when you were picking grain, this is like, like y'all don't really pick grain, I don't pick grain. But if you were in a situation in which you were picking grain, it was against the Old Testament law for you to pick every piece of grain. Because there was an expectation that you would leave some for those who needed help. All right, so th- this isn't, they, they didn't get this from MSNBC. They didn't get this from the progressive. No, this is the scriptures, okay? Now, now when we think about who the church helps and why, we must distinguish between two things. We must distinguish between what I'll call this service of obligation and this service of charity and generosity. So the same institution, this service to take care of the widows is talked about in 1 Timothy. Now, 1 Timothy is this letter from one pastoral leader to another. Talking about how do you manage God's church. And in 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 8, this is what he says. Paul says to Timothy, support widows who are genuinely in need. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness toward their own family first and to repay their parents, for this pleases God. The widow who is truly in need and left all alone has put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. However, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command this also so that they will be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What, he's, what is this getting at is that the scripture presupposes that you have circles of responsibility. So I'll paint a picture. Like imagine if, if I, I just did a lot of charity work for people I didn't know. I just did lots of charity work. But then my kids were hungry. You wouldn't go, well, good job. You go, you need to take care of your kids. Like that's your family. Before you start doing all this other stuff, take care of what's, what's close to you. So when we think about the benevolence ministry of the church, you take care of family first. That's not, dang, dang, you ain't got to feel no kind of way about that. That's just your circle of responsibility. So if you are a member of the church or you are a part of this church and you are in hard times, the church's first responsibility and service is you. That you would make sure, that we would make sure that you have what you need. See, God expects the church to help members in need. Now, what's interesting is this happens naturally. See, many of the needs of those who are already connected relationally to the church, get taken care of before it even gets to me. I've noticed it. When somebody needs help, I, I, people just naturally begin to help one another because that, that impulse is there. But there are certain occasions when maybe the, the situation is too big for maybe one person or one family, and then it gets to the benevolence team. And one of the first questions we ask as a benevolence team that helps people go, is this person involved in the church? If they are then the question of helping them gets a lot easier because we have to take care of our family, our responsibility first. Yet, hear this from Galatians 6.10. It says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially 
for those who belong to the household of the faith. So again, it's saying, no, you, you help those who are in your community, but your intention is to help everybody. If you have the means, you help everybody that you can. God expects us to be generous and to serve all people. Listen, listen, one thing that's really interesting is, is we take for granted this thing called hospitals. You know, they're, they're everywhere now. But that, there, were, there wasn't such a thing always as a hospital. And the hospitals have their origins in the Christian church. If you, do y'all remember the, the parable of the Good Samaritan where the guy, he's sick on the road, and, and it was a good thing that the, 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 guy, uh, the, the Samaritan helped the guy, and he didn't take him to the hospital. He took him to the inn. Why? Because there wasn't one. There wasn't such a thing. But the church, because of its concern for everybody, said we need to create an institution that will provide health care for those who are in need. That was a church fulfilling Galatians 6.10. If we have opportunity, let's work for the good of all. Now, what we notice, again, we have the church living this out in Acts chapter 6. And what we see in verse 1 is that there were some cultural tensions in the church. Look at verse 1. It says, In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in daily distribution. So, so what's going on here? On the surface, it looks like there's a logistical problem. Oh, man, somebody's being overlooked by somebody. But let's, let's get into the meaning. What, is, what does it mean to be a Hellenistic Jew? A Hellenistic Jew were those who were of Jewish descent, but they had adopted Greek culture and language. Okay, so a little history lesson at this point in time. The, 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 uh, society, the country of Israel was under the control of the Romans. Before it was under control of the Romans, it was under the control of the Greeks. And the Greeks represented a different culture, a different language than what was there to begin with. So the Hellenistic Jews were the ones that said, oh, there's this new culture and language? Let's adopt it. They got some cool stuff there in Greece. Let's do what they do over there in Greece. And then you have the Hebraic Jews. These are those who retained the Hebrew language and culture. Say, so we're not, uh, this new culture is interesting, but we're going to stick back to the roots. We're going to just stick to what we know. We're going to continue to speak the Hebrew language. We're going to continue to do the culture that we were given, and we're not going to adopt the new culture. Now, what you need to understand is that this insinuates that there was some ethnic tension. There was some tension between the Jews and the Greeks or the Jews and the Romans. And within the community of God, those tensions kind of rose up and it bubbled up. And you can imagine that those who break Jews, those who retain the culture, they would say, what are you doing adopting the language and the culture of the enemy? And you can imagine the, the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek Jews looking, well, why don't you just kind of, kind of come on up to the first century now? We, didn't, we need to move on. There was this tension there. Yeah, I know, right? Not only that, there was a political tension, right? So the, the Hebraic Jews, they remember the, the old kingdom. We used to have this king. We used to have, our borders were secure. And then these Greeks rolled up on us and took our junk. And then you got the, the, the Hellenistic Jews saying, look, I know you probably said, let's just move on, man. Let's, let's just, this is the king. It is what it is now. What you see is these, these tensions, this, this conservative tension and this progressive tension. Now, before you map conservative as Republican or uh, progressive as Democrat, conservative, the language conserve, it means retain. Retain what you had. That's what it means. Progressive, progress, move on. In every single culture, there are going to be these tensions. 
retain, retain something. Like, so you look in the past, you see something good, retain it. Or there's progress, it's like, there's something wrong, let's, let's go on. And there's these tensions, and these tensions, listen, found their way inside of the church. So that some people, the, the Hellenistic Jews said, listen, the reason that my mama's not getting food is because you don't like me because I speak this language and like this culture. Now listen, I ain't make that up. That's, that's the scripture. That's just what it say. And in the past year, have we not seen that express itself in churches? You don't think like me. You don't, you don't vote like me. You don't do this. You don't look like me. You don't speak like me. And then, then this tension kind of arises and there's, there's some friction there. And so this source of deep division could threaten to tear apart the early church. Remember, this church is not, it's not like they've been there for a minute. The church just started four chapters ago. And, and listen, if the tension would remain, would it not tarnish the reputation of Christ? You talk about this new kingdom, y'all can't even get along together. What this teaches us is that we don't need to sweep under the rugs points of tension. We should be able to talk to each other in the church. Okay? Now, here's what I don't mean. I don't mean that you go on social media and just talk to the people who agree with you. <laughs> I mean, talk to somebody in their face. <laughs> talk to, if you have a different, listen, I've talked to people with differences of opinion. That does not necessarily mean that I changed my opinion, but at the very least, I understood more where they was coming from. And I was like, that's not necessarily as crazy as I thought it was. Listen, in the church, when somebody disagrees with us, we don't just go, well, we need to separate. You know, no, we press in closer and say, help me understand where you're coming from. Because we're brothers and sisters. The, the bond that we have in Christ has to be greater than any other division that could divide us. And so listen, let me, when the rubber meets the road, so when I say the word justice and somebody looks at me and says, are you a Marxist? This has happened repeatedly. And I say, no, <laughs> I am not. The, the, the word justice was in the Bible before there was a Karl Marx, okay? And we have to define it from the text. Now, listen, I'm glad they asked you rather than just go talk on social media. We didn't have a conversation. If you got a question about somebody's view, if you got a question about what somebody believes, go and talk to them. <laughs> Don't just assume you know why they think or say or do that. Family talks to each other. Now listen, in order to address the problem, the church needed a clarified leadership structure. Look at verse 2. The 12, that's the apostles, the 12 summoned the whole company of disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. So remember, this, this culture issue manifests itself as a logistical issue. That there was some sort of logistical issue with how they were distributing the food and the resources to the widows. And the apostles said, like, like listen, they didn't say it's not important, not because I've read the rest of the text. But they said, the primary ministry that we have is the ministry of the word. That's what they said. Without the gospel of Christ, get this, there is no church. If ain't nobody preaching God's word, it ain't a church. It could be a nice little organization, but it's not a church if the word of God is not preached. And matter of fact, Jesus rules his church through the word. Like, how do we know what Jesus wants us to do? Because it is. So we need it. We need, like, it's, it's integral to the life of the church that the word is preached. And there needed to be some people, the apostles in this text, that gave priority to the spiritual aspects of the ministry. Yet... They did not discount the need of the deed ministry. 
I could imagine they could come to the apostles and say, look, man, there's something going on with the distribution. And, you know, there's this tension. You know, maybe they, they got some cultural tension. And I could, what if they were like, that's fine and everything. We just preached the gospel. Go on. They didn't say that, did they? No, like, no, we need to, like, we need to address the tension. And so what we see in verses 3 and 4 is that there, there is this necessity of both word and deed ministry and word and deed leadership. Look at verse 3. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So what we see in this text is the church kind of has two broad functions. There's this word ministry, this preaching of the, the gospel, this, this spiritual dimension. And yet at the same time, there's this deed, this physical, this, we, got, we got some physical uh, things that we need to do. And what we saw is, is there's this distinction. We got the apostles who are the 12 uh, spiritual leaders. And then you got the, the um, well, what they call the first deacons, these seven men who are going to devote themselves to the physical needs. And what we see in this this is the, the, the first division, if you will, of where we get the term either pastor and elder, so that would be in the apostle's place, and deacon. Now listen, let me tell you why this is important. It's important because the church acknowledges we have to have the word ministry. And so we need some people dedicated to that. And the church acknowledges that we got to have the deed ministry. And we need some people dedicated to that. I didn't say pick one or the other. And I didn't say one is better than the other. They just said, we have to have these functions. So we are going to appoint people to do those things. And so again, this is, this is a, a, a sermon series about membership, about partnership. And so this, this principle is one of the reasons that we structure the church the way it is. Why do we have pastors and elders and, and hopefully deacons? We're a new church. We're trying to get some, all right? So how, why, why is that the goal? Because, because we think that the church has to focus on the word ministry. It has a focus on the spiritual dimension of ministry. And at the same time, it needs people who are focused on the logistics and the service of the, the, the people around it. We, we need both so that we can be a, a holistic, faithful church that is faithful to what the scriptures call us to be. Now, what's interesting, if you get to verses five and six, we see this need for faithful representative leadership. Look at verse five. The proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. What I love is that the apostles said, yo, we got to do word and deed ministry. And the church wasn't like, no, pick. The church was like, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> We should do that. Let's, let's agree that we don't have to pick and that we don't need to pit them against one another. Let's all agree that we should do both of those things. And what's interesting is the selection of these seven men demonstrated that the, con the congregation did not ignore the potential ethnic and political tension. Because if you pay real close attention, every single one of those names is a Greek name. Now, remember, let's back up. What was the, what was the discussion about? It was a discussion about the Hellenistic Jews and the Greek Jews. And the Greek Jews was like, why are you not giving food to my mama? Okay. And what the apostles did is, okay, maybe, that's, maybe the logistics are true or not, but we're not going to ignore what you said. So let's, let's get some, some, some Greek-speaking guys up here to make sure that they are not ignored. 
I want you to understand this. They did not ignore the ethnic tension. They did not ignore the cultural tension. They actually appointed people who would represent the minority culture. You see that? See, the Greek names, and even this, in, in, in verse 5, it says there's a convert from Antioch. I know y'all think that means convert to Christianity, but it means a, a convert, a, a Gentile who decided to become a Jew. So someone who wasn't even Jewish, they, they said, listen, I know that y'all might think there's some tension, and there really might be some tension. But what we're going to do is we're going to get input from everybody so that we can make sure that we treat each other with equity and fairness. This means they had conversations and they heard different perspectives. It means that they not only said they loved each other, but they demonstrated that love and what they did. And then when you look at the, the cohesion of the leaders in the church, they taught something. Yo, we need word of deep ministry. And the church said, all right. You see that beauty where the, there's a faithful teaching of the scriptures and the church says, I want to obey that. And we see this beautiful harmony. Now, in verse 7, we can see the result of faithful word and deed ministry. So, verse 7, I think it's interesting. So, so means there, it's, it's like because. So, because they did that, so the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. The church was a witness of both physical and spiritual care. And everybody around the church said, well, look, look at that. Look at what they're doing. They're preaching the word and they're helping people. What, what y'all talking about over there? Maybe, maybe I should hear about it. Who is this king y'all talking about? Who is this Jesus that we thought was dead and is alive? Because he must be alive because when I look at your community, there's this beautiful synthesis where people are caring for each other, both in word and in deed. Who is this Jesus who inspires community like this? Who is this Jesus who crosses these ethnic and cultural boundaries? Let me hear what he has to say. Not only that, the witness of the church, one over their opposition. Now, when it says a large number of priests became obedient to the faith, do y'all remember the people who crucified Jesus? They were the priests. They were the priests and the leadership. Now, what's so interesting is they, they, they didn't once crucify Jesus, and, and if you pay attention, the people who persecuted the apostles were from this class, this priestly or Jewish leadership class. These, these are the ones who would, would stone and try to, try to kill the apostles. But there were some of them that saw what the church was doing, and they said, well, wait a minute, maybe, maybe we're wrong. Maybe we have done, because listen, they were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. They were familiar that God's people were supposed to care for each other, both in word and in deed. And they looked at the church whom they did not like. And they said, even though I don't like you, and I don't actually believe what you said, I got to pay attention a little bit because you're demonstrating something to me. And because you're demonstrating something to me, I'll give you my ear. And they preached the gospel to the ones who would oppose them. And their witness of the type of community they were, won over even their opponents. Beloved, this is, it's, listen, listen, we don't just uh, preach the gospel in word, but how we relate to one another demonstrates or either invalidates what we are preaching. You know, I don't know if y'all notice, but the world is kind of skeptical of the church, yeah? I don't know if you notice that or not. Maybe you did, maybe you don't. Just, you know now, okay? Sorry. Uh, the world is somewhat skeptical. What are y'all doing over there? 
Y'all just y'all just go into your holy holy huddle. This is stuff I hear. You just get on Sundays and you just go do what you want to do. Now listen, a skeptical world needs an active church. A skeptical world needs an active church. Because listen, we're not just preaching about things. We are living lives that correspond to what we are preaching about. And so what I hear all the time when I talk to people who don't go to church, they're like, oh, you know, the church don't do stuff. They, you know, they just be taking people money and this, that, and another. And, I, and then I begin to describe just a little bit of what our church is able to do when we build basketball court for the community, when we have an out-of-school program, when we partner with DSS to have a foster care room. And I say, are you sure about what you said? Are you sure that we only just get into a room and talk to each other? Because we have a Jesus who was faithful in both word and deed. We can see the ministry of Jesus. Well, look, Jesus didn't just go around preaching, did he? He went around healing people. And he went around feeding people. I don't know if y'all remember that either. Matter, matter of fact, some people just follow him so they can get some bread. I heard you had some good bread, Jesus. Can you make some more? <laughs> All right, listen, listen. This, this, when the scripture says that he does signs and wonders, you heard this language, signs and wonders. What does that word sign mean? A sign is something that points to something else, right? So when you're driving down the street and you see the stop sign, what do you do? You stop. The sign is pointing to some information. It's pointing to something that is true. And so when Jesus is healing people and helping people and serving people, and then he begins to preach, he says, look at the signs that I did. Because the signs that I did point to the truth of what I am saying. And his church must do likewise. The things that we do, the way we treat one another, the way that we serve those around us, it has to be a sign pointing to the truth of the gospel that we preach. And I love that that Jesus' ministry wasn't just word, but it was deed. And the the deed that, that he did that actually saved us is when he got up on that cross. Remember, he ain't he's not just talking at that point. It cost him something. He's not just saying something, but the nails pierce his hands and feet. He's not just saying, I love you, but he is bleeding it. His deed service, his service where he sacrificed his body, where he gave his blood for us, that is what saves us. And so when we look to him, the one who not only taught us, but served us in his life and death, we say, Jesus, thank you that you have done that. You have forgiven my sins. Now let me follow you and do likewise. Let me speak what is right and let me do what is right, even if it costs me something. Because we follow him. And so, so when we think about what it means to, to join the church, what it means to partner with the church, we have to have that in mind, that we're not just high-fiving each other and doing something, but that we are getting together and say, actually, we want, we want to, to embody this gospel that has saved us. And so one of the, the ways that we do that is through stewardship and through giving. Stewardship is it, just this teaching that, that all that we have doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. Yeah. Everything that I have, every every cent that I have belongs to God. 
And when I give faithfully to the church, it is my demonstration that I acknowledge that. Now, remember, you could just say, I acknowledge that. But there's this other part of it, right? The word and the deed. The word and the deed. And the generosity of the people of God fulfills the word and deed functions of the church. Now, let's go back to Acts 6. Where did they get this food to give to the widows? Did it just appear out of the sky? No. Somebody gave some money so that they could have some food to help people. That's logistics. It just had to happen, did it not? Otherwise, people was going to go hungry. People were not going to get helped. And so the generosity of God, see, there's one way you could look at it as the church is like begging for your money, or there's this other way of saying, actually, Jesus has saved me and he has a mission, and I can utilize what I have to fulfill the mission that he has. And so even now, when, when, when you are giving to the church, it fulfills this word function, this preaching of the word function, so that, that, that people in our church have access to pastoral counseling, because I get to be here. And other, other pastors get to be here. When people are going through stuff, we can go and be with them. We have the freedom to do that because of the church's support. Not only that, we get this opportunity to do what I call outreach counseling. I counsel so many people who, who they don't go to church. They have not stepped foot in the church, but because we have that freedom, we can step into people's lives and show them the hope of Christ. Because of the giving of the church, the word is shared from this place every single day. That could not happen without the generosity of God's church. And also that generosity of God's church helps with the deed, the physical stuff of the church. Listen, like our churches help people buy and fix cars. Our church, uh, we have this computer lab where we have uh, helped people do resumes, where we have helped them do certifications. Listen, there are times in our neighborhood when somebody has an unexpected death and they don't have the money to pay for their funeral and we have been able to help them. Physical things. And so when we say Christ Jesus loves you, it's not just word but that we have something, a sign that demonstrates that it is true. And the church gets together and they serve others on mission. We serve those in the body. Listen, we serve through Sunday ministries. Somebody got to get here early and sing. Somebody got to put the communion under the, under the chair. Like these little logistical things that you don't even think about. Somebody has to be there present. And we serve the world as a sign of the gospel. And we have tangible ways to do that. We have this after-school program. When we walked around the community and we asked, what do people need? The most consistent answer we got is we need something for the kids. When I say kids, I mean youth, okay? It's saying because too many of them are getting wrapped up in gangs. Oh, listen, I had, a, I had a meeting with the administration of our local high school. There are 13 gangs active in our community, okay? We, that means we got to step and say, okay, we need to be, we need to be here. For these young people, we need to provide a community because the only reason they're going there is because they don't have community and they're looking for acceptance. And so we have to provide that through the church. We do ministry at the high school when we do uh, feeding, we, we feed the, the, the sports teams once a week and get uh, with Tom Dudley do that. We have, but so listen, we're not just going to say stuff, but our actions have to back up what we say. There's one final thing and I'll, and I'll be done for real. <laughs> For real, I'm sorry, y'all. That's not a preacher. I'll be done. I will be, really will be done. Um, you know, when I was, I've told some of, some of y'all this story before. When I first started uh, getting involved 
uh, with our local high school, uh, the administration was very standoffish to me. And I couldn't figure out why. I'm like, I'm trying to help y'all. You know what I mean? Like, like why y'all so standoffish? You know, I don't, I don't quite understand. But as I got to know the administration and as we continue to be faithful, uh, they shared with me, you know, a lot of churches come to us and say that they want to help our students and they want to help our school, but they don't stay. They, they, they have a big game of talk, but they don't follow through. And so I'm weary when churches say, I want to come help, because we already have students whose family says negative things to them sometimes, and they feel like people are just going to leave them. And we don't need people from the church coming and then leaving and coming and then leaving because that teaches them that they don't have worth. Listen, listen. So, so this isn't hypothetical. In our community, the church has marred its witness because it has not followed through with the deed. But we need to say, no, we follow a Jesus who not only preached, but he bled. He sacrificed himself for our good. And so if we follow that Jesus, we don't just talk a good game, but we demonstrate it through consistent service, even when it's inconvenient and even when it hurts. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you loved us truly, that you loved us with your word and and you loved us with your service, and you loved us with your sacrifice. And Jesus, you rose from the dead. You, you're seated in heaven, and you are present through the Spirit to empower your church to imitate you. And so, Lord, I pray that our church would imitate you and be faithful with the ministry that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen.